Up next is Safe Space. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, ashamed, afraid, or just really uncomfortable. Tonight's show is the last in a series we've been doing on working with our dreams, and my guest is Chris Beach. We're going to be talking about the nuts and bolts of how we work with our dreams. Chris Beach is a graduate of the Jung Center in Zurich, Switzerland. He trained there in both Jungian analysis and in psychodrama. He works here in a private practice in Portland, and he works with both individuals as well as leading uh, several dream groups. He offers courses on Jung's life and ideas, and also on dream interpretation, psychological type, and ethics. In fact, Chris will be leading a course this fall at USM's Center for Continuing Education on working with your dreams, so keep your eyes out for that. He's currently writing a book on psychological type, and just as an aside, uh, when he was younger, Chris helped build a school in Kenya, right near where uh, the family compound of President Obama's father and he also later served as an assistant attorney general in Maine, working on health care law. Welcome to Safe Space, Chris. Thank you very much, Anne. It's great to be here. Yeah, so with your, you have quite a, a wildly you know, interesting past. Uh, how, did it, how did it bring you to this place where dreams are such a deep part of your life and work? Well, it's kind of funny when I get asked that question. I usually go back to when I was uh, in Kenya and um, my wife and I were building this school and, and teaching at it and heading it. And her brother, who was only 17, came over to do his senior year in high school. And he used to come down to our, the he used to come to the breakfast and he'd um, tell his dreams. And all I was interested in was building the school. We had to ride our bikes four miles to get to the school. And I used to tell him, well, I'm not interested in your dreams. We've got to get up to the school. <laughs> and I, I tell that because now I'm sort of, in a sense, a dream doctor. And I've moved all the way from that position to, to taking dreams very seriously. And what happened to me is that the middle of my life, when I got into a, really a crisis and just trying to figure out what was important, what wasn't, what was going to stay the same, what was going to change, would I stay working as an attorney or really change to a different career, um, all those kinds of issues came up, and working with a psychologist, which I was doing, uh, who did cognitive behavioral psychology, really wasn't enough, and it became important to look at my dreams, and I switched to working with an analyst. It turned out to be a Jungian analyst, Paul, uh, Paul Huss in Brunswick, and um, I began to be able to see a lot more deeply into myself by working with dreams and doing other things in depth. And when you first started paying attention to your dreams, was it hard to remember them, to have access to them? It it wasn't to me, but it can be. I teach dream interpretation, and it can be for a lot of people. A lot of people um, either have a lot on their mind, so when they wake up in the morning, that's what comes into their mind first, and or they wake up quickly with an alarm clock, or they just tend to wake up and hit the day on the run. All those things tend to uh, keep people from remembering their dreams. But if they were to lay down in a sleep study and they were to be woken up each time there's rapid eye movement, they would quickly find out that they're actually dreaming. But what's generally happening is not that they're not dreaming, but rather that they're not remembering and recalling the dreams. So you mean if each one of us had a home device that would wake us up when our eyes were moving, we would remember our dreams? 
we'd remember more, which there might be a downside to that. But for someone... Yeah, I think there would definitely <laughs> yeah, be a downside yeah, to that. You, actually, one of the problems is you can get someone to come to see you who's remembering six or eight dreams a night, and it's uh, it's a real problem. It's too much. It's overwhelming. But when I teach dream interpretation, there's almost always one or two people who don't remember their dreams. They say that right away, and so I try to help them figure out ways to... Um, at least begin to recall them. So what are some of the ways that help people remember their dreams? Well, the thing that I think is most important is to remember that there's four levels of sleep from REM stage down to deep stage four sleep. And then there's three levels of wake, wake, wakefulness. And the, the three levels might be, if I use lay person's terms, just that sort of groggy state when you're awake but not much with it. Then a kind of autopilot state. And then finally when you're really on top of your game and you're really fully awake and going. And you want to try to wake up slowly. So if you wake up and you sort of think you have a dream, stay with your eyes closed. Don't move. Try to um, bring it back and get any part of it that you can. And and if you don't, let go and just wait for another time. Because eventually for everybody, there's going to be a time when a dream just is so powerful it breaks through. I know that some people ask for a dream the night before when they go to sleep. Do you find that useful? Um, I was going to mention that. I think that works for some people. And I don't know if you have any experience with this, too, and I ask you. My own experience is that you don't want to frustrate people. So I always say you can try that, but do it kind of in a hopeful, uh, prayerful, or wishing sort of way, not expecting it to happen, because it doesn't work for everybody. There's no sense in getting frustrated. But there are people who definitely say, for example, I have this problem, I'm working on it, can you give me a dream that helps me deal with it? And there are people who really will regularly get dreams that are helpful that way. My sense, too, is that there are times of life when it's hard to remember dreams, like maybe when your child is the first three years. Yeah. <laughs> because, A, you're exhausted, but, B, you leap up from your bed when right. you hear that cry. Yeah. This is not going to happen. Exactly. Anytime outer life is so busy... Uh, that you're getting six hours, seven hours, five hours, you have a child, and you're getting up in the middle of the night, and your sleep pattern is disrupted, those are the times you're least likely to remember dreams very often. Of course, those might be the same times you need your dreams <laughs> <laughs> the most. <laughs> I know. So, I, so coming back to you then, Chris, so here you are, you've been an attorney, you've been in Africa, you, you realize that cognitive behavioral therapy is not taking it deeply enough. Mm-hmm. So you work with this analyst, you you pay attention to your dreams. And and you said to me earlier that often you know, the first dream that you remember or a really important childhood dream tends to be really important. And I, I wondered if you would tell me if you if you have a dream like that and, and sure. maybe how that was for you. Sure. And, and many people, rem- the two ways I think of this, and these dreams often tell us when we look at them and stand back later in our lives, they really show us a lot about who we were and who we are. So I'm going to tell mine. Mine is a repeating dream that I had from ages 6 to about 11 or 12. The other thing that I suggest people to do is think of what was the first dream they can ever remember. That also tends to be very powerful. Otherwise, how could they possibly still remember it now when they're in their 30s, 40s, or 50s? But mine was a repeating dream, and it went like this. I'm in a car, except I'm driving, and my father's in the passenger seat rather than the reverse. And um, I wouldn't drive anything until I was on a farm at 9 or 10 driving tractors, and it wasn't cars then. So by 6, I'm already in a dream driving a car. My father's riding next to me, and I'm feeling like he's um, kind of maybe a little proud that I can drive. I'm a little nervous. Um, um, 
I'm trying to do the best I can. It's a real stretch. And then suddenly we'll move from a level kind of ground, and it took place in different scenes, different times I had the dream, but always it ended up where I'm going down a very steep hill and the car is accelerating. And at the bottom of the hill is a ravine and a stream with a vertical pitch, and there's a bridge that's about one and a half car widths wide. So you have to, it's almost like there's only two feet on either side, and I have to hit the bridge exactly straight on, and it's about an eighth of a mile long. It's like maybe two, three football field long. And the car by then, it might be going 50, 60 miles an hour. And I have to hold the car straight onto the bridge and across until it decelerates. I can feel my anxiety rising just <laughs> listening to you. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was pretty anxiety raising. And um, I believe every time I would hit the bridge and make it across, but I was really anxious. And how I looked at this dream over time changed. First of all, it made a strong impression because I had it probably 15 or 20 times in my life. And um, I, I think as a child, as often is true with children, we, we often don't, we pretty much don't encourage children to interpret their dreams. I don't think I interpreted my dream at the time. Probably the first time I thought about it was when I was reading about childhood development in college. And um, I, I realized, oh, that's a classic achievement dream in in what used to be called the latency period or the achievement period of childhood from about 6 to 11 or 12 when we get better and better at skills that we're going to use the rest of our life. And here I am, you know, using uh, a skill they're going to need for most of the rest of my life, except very early and very precociously, which is driving. And I'm, I'm pulling it off. And I thought, okay, that, that matched. I tended to do things well as a child and um, I achieved pretty well and so on. Then a little later, I wouldn't know exactly when, what I noticed was, and by midlife I got very clear, so maybe I should just jump up, like let's say when I'm in this crisis and I'm thinking about my dreams a lot. What I notice is that the dream that, that I'm put in a position to have to please my father, you know, and really do a task that he should be doing. And it's almost like little Lord Fontenroy in the extreme. I'm, I'm having to do too much. And also, it very accurately picks my psychological nature, which is all of us to deal with whatever our problems are, have defense mechanisms, and mine was to be the good little boy. Well, I'm being a very good little boy here. And if you think about it, you might name this dream the straight and narrow. And my way of dealing with not getting, you know, how to get through life with a father who could be angry sometimes. He was not a terrible father, but he could get angry, was to always do the right thing. And you can see I'm trying really hard to do the right thing here and keep the straight and narrow. And then a little later, I realized, wow, this really picks up on, was it predicting, I don't know, how my father would abdicate his father and leave the family. He's he's already not in the driver's seat. It's He's handed over to me. And although there are many good qualities about my father and all of us brothers have achieved well, as you might expect from this dream, there is like too much pressure on us. And the dream shows that too much pressure. And it really shows him handing over too early the the role of driving the car, driving the family car. So what I'm sensing is that your your sense of the meaning of this dream for you really deepened over time. It deepened very much over time. I'd say there, there are three stages in it. And the last one was to see, oh, my God, it actually predicts how my dad would, like, step away too too soon. And did you find that your feelings about the dream changed as your your sense of its meaning changed? 
Yeah, I, I think you used the word deepen. It did deepen. I, th I think all the interpretations are right at each level. Um, when I first thought it as an achievement dream, it actually made me feel better, I would say. And then at the levels of sort of the straight and narrow and the, my father leaving, I don't know if I would say there's anger there, but more like self-recognition definitely with the straight and narrow. There, That's how I coped. That's what the defense was. And there are good things about every defense, and then there's problems with every defense. Uh, and I think I thought I, I was mostly struck and curious and fascinated that it might have been picking up on where my father was going to go. Yeah. You know, uh, without commenting on your dream, I'm aware as a listener, yeah. as a mother of a six-year-old boy, yeah. since you started having the dream yeah. when you're six, you know, my son loves to play with the wheel, but he can't even see over the dashboard. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, when I'm picturing you there, I, I'm actually hearing the dream as the mother of that boy that might be in that seat and feeling, you know, almost angry for him, like protective. I was struck. Like, yeah. Oh, the outrage of you being in that position. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, and of course, I didn't live that. I mean, um, I was, as a boy, I was very proud of all the things we did. You know, I mean, the good thing about my family is it did encourage us to get out on our own and, and do things, hence going and building a school in Kenya. So that's the upside. But you can see in the dream the downside. You can see the anxiety and the kind of drivenness to it. And the real, the real peril, if you hadn't yes. made that. Yes. That bridge. That narrow bridge. So this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. And I'm talking to Chris Beach about working with our dreams. And I know you have some really um, concrete suggestions that you make in your courses and in your groups about how people can can deepen their relationship. If, if, if they have a, a dream like that, that they remember from childhood or that comes back. And what are some of the ways that you help people work with their dreams? Well, since we have so little time, I'll just name what I call comically the big four the, the first thing you have to do of course is record the dream and get a good writing down of it but when, once you have that there are several ways you can approach the dream and there are four of them that I find particularly helpful these aren't the only four but they're the major ones the first is with your own dream or someone else's and particularly with someone else's to be respectful of them you're likely to have a hunch about what the dream means because you know the person or whatever stick that in your back pocket it's going to be wrong about ninety percent of the time and it's a humbling thing but approaching your dream or someone else's first with the attitude i don't really know what this dream's about is wise and um, if it doesn't happen to you naturally it's a good thing to adopt so take the hunch don't throw it away Write it down, put it in your back pocket or, or put it to the side, and then come to the next three. And they are, how do you feel at each point in the dream? Like, how do I feel when I'm with my father? Well, I feel kind of proud. I feel a little nervous because it's a hard task, but I'm kind of up that I get to show him I, or that he's asked me to drive and I get a chance to drive it. That's the feeling there. How do I feel later in the dream? Like, really scared or very nervous. I can't, you know, am I going to make the bridge and can't believe the the car is going so fast. And then when it makes it straight down the bridge, there is a kind of relief at the end of the dream. So that would be the feeling. And the third thing is, you know, what are your associations? In this dream, it's my father and, um, you know, um, let's go to the bridge, the, the straight and narrow bridge. I've already done that piece of work. I look at the bridge and I've thought about this dream over and over and over. And I see what I've deduced is it's straight and narrow. And from that, the association is to the idea of straight and narrow. And, oh, yeah, that's how I, I was a good boy. I, got, I made sure I didn't get into trouble by being a good boy. And that's me keeping to the straight and narrow. Now, when I first saw that, it would take me years, you know, before I get to that. But if I were just to associate to the bridge, 
and talk about what it looks like, I might get there, you know, in an hour or a half an hour of working on my own or a quarter an hour or something like that. If I work with some other people, they might see it and help me in a dream group or with a therapist. So we have hunch, we have feelings, and we have um, associations. Let's say you had a cow in your dream and you, you, you want to associate how is cow, what in my life, where have I seen cow? Oh, there was once the cow kicked me. Nothing happens when I think about that. Nothing happens in your body. Nothing yeah. happens in my body. I don't have a... Then I think like, oh my God, there was the time I was supposed to get to keep the cows in and they all got out, you know? And it was like the end of the world when that happened. I thought the world was, you know, being a good boy. I thought, oh my God. You know. So there you, you can feel me getting anxious. You can feel the body sensation. You say, okay, that association is probably an important one. It's like charge somehow. It's got a charge, Yeah. And the last one you ask, and, and I actually think this is the single most important thing you can, you can ask about, and I think Jung feels the same way in his writings, is what's the outer context? What happened the day before you had the dream? And what's on your mind in, the, in this week and this month? What's, what's the, the concern that you keep turning over? There has to be a certain self-awareness to do that. For the day before, it can sometimes be something really obvious. I got into a fight with my wife. But it might be something you've forgotten about. Like I went by and there was an accident and there, was, there were some bodies and you've got a, a child in the dream that, that's down and, and has been hit and you suddenly that comes back and you get, oh, right. Even though I've forgotten that, that was really had an impact for five minutes before I had to get on to my next client or whatever it was. And so that might be the, uh, the key outer context thing that's, that's provoking it. So when you work the dream, you write it down and then you write down your feelings at each point in the dream, at the beginning of the dream, at the middle of the dream, at the end of the dream. You write down your associations. You write down what the outer contexts are that might be tripping the dream or bringing the dream on. And you kind of hold them all and look at it. And sometimes when you do that, before you get to a therapist, an analyst, or your best friend or a dream group, something goes click in you and you begin to see what the dream might be pointing to. You can then go back and look at the hunch. Usually the, your interpretation with the hunch is going to be much more from your conscious mind. It doesn't have the depth you'll have by doing these four, these other three steps, and then there's several others that we don't have time to talk about. So there, there is one more that I know about that I actually do yep. want to ask you about more in depth. And I, and I know that some people call it active imagination, where you actually have a dialogue with a key figure from the dream. And I wondered if you could tell me more about that and how that works. Sure. Um, what you can do, before I get to that, I should say that you can paint a key scene from your dream. You can dance it. You could enact it. You could uh, draw it. You could sculpt it. You could carve it. Any kind of way that you engage with the dream, you could make it into a play. Um, when you do that kind of, that's what psychodrama is if you work on a dream, it, any kind of actively bringing the dream to life tends to ha bring along moments with it where you see more than you were seeing at first. Active imagination, you could say that's a simple form of active imagination. There's a very, um, Jungian psychology has a very mm, deep and um, powerful way of doing active imagination. And I'm going to say before I tell the story that there are several cautions, and the number one thing is that you, you just don't do this unless you have a therapist or analyst who has experience with it who can help you and make sure that you do it the right way and you don't hurt yourself. And there's some others which we probably don't have time, but I can give an example. A woman uh, who was about 50 and she um, 
came to me. She'd had a terrible trauma in childhood, extended period of time. And she'd done a lot of work on herself by the time she came to me and had really come quite far. She'd done certain kinds of visioning things ahead of time. So when she asked me about active imagination earlier than usual in the therapy, I went over how to do it with her. I usually wait till about a year of seeing people before I even discuss it. And she decided on her own to uh, try it with this dream. And she'd had many dreams. Uh, many times she'd wake and she'd sort of have like night terrors or just cold sweats. And sometimes they pre precipitated by someone chasing her to kill her. So she had just had a dream with a 30-year-old man chasing her with a knife. And um, he was pursuing. She was terrified. She woke up in a cold sweat, as had happened many times in her life. And usually what would happen is she'd be awake for the next hour or two hours in dread and not be able to go back to sleep. She did an act of imagination, which meant she sat down and repictured the scene with him chasing. She inserted into the scene in her mind's eye uh, a man called the CIA man, who was from another dream, who was a very positive, helpful figure. And he encouraged her to go ahead and do this. In, in, in so her, she sort of enlists a helper. She enlisted helpers. It's actually very critical, especially confronting something as dangerous as a man chasing you with a knife, huge knife. And so she had an ally, and he said, go ahead, it's safe. And so she turned and faced the man charging her with a knife and said, what is it that you want from me? And the charging young man of 30 just sank down onto the side of the street, put his head down and lifted it up and said, I've been trying to get your attention for years and you wouldn't pay any attention to me. And I finally took up the knife so you would get a point, get the point. And the point is this, I've just been trying to come to you to say that when the cold sweats and the terror comes, all you have to do is yell back at it and it'll go away and you'll be able to sleep. And so the next time that happened, which was not long after the act of imagination, a few nights later, um, she, she was married. She couldn't yell out loud. But in her mind, she sat up and she yelled at this terror. And it completely went away. And the consequence was she fell back to sleep in minutes. And she hasn't been bothered by this in years since. Not that it's never happened again, but the incidence has dropped way off. When it does, what this... Um, knife-wielding man who seemed to be her enemy turns out to be a warrior on her side and she was ignoring it and by facing him she got valuable information that and it's hard to imagine this is one of the most powerful active imaginations of situations I've ever heard because the attacker ends up being the ally I don't know if you've had experience with this or well in in my experience I think often part parts of ourselves even not maybe so much from dreams that scare us, in fact, are turning the volume up to get our attention. Yes. And, but it requires enormous courage to turn and face that. And, um, and there's lots of ways that I've learned to help people do it, but in enlisting the help of a, an ally in the... Inside uh, the person. Inside the imagination. I don't yes. know how else the language for it. Yeah. That's something I haven't used, and uh, that seems wonderful. I mean, I imagine she was also counting on you, Yes, well, and I would have to say what you said, it takes a great deal of courage is an overwhelming fact. And um, this would not be a good thing for anyone just to try randomly at all. I would be absolutely discouraged. She'd had 15 or 20 years of therapy before she took this on. She was a very brave person. She was at a point where she's ready. She could try it. Notice she had an ally in her mind's eye to help her, you know. And, um, and um, 
if if you, you know, some of the other cautions are if, if you're afraid to do this, don't. It's easy. If you're going to actually not be able to distinguish between the inner world and the outer world, don't start. If you start to get confused, stop. In There's... other words, if your reality testing is not solid. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think that piece about if you're afraid to do it makes sense because what's so striking in your story is that when she turned, she turns with interest. Yes. She turns as what is it, you know, you what want. What is it that you want from me? Yeah. So she's... She's curious. Yes. And so she and she's not saying, well, why are you doing this to me right. out of this cowering right. kind of energy, which right. I think probably was pivotal. It is pivotal. If you think about it, she knows that she's awake. This figure can't actually harm her. She has an ally in the inner world to help her. And she's her in the outer world. So that being able to distinguish from the outer and the inner is critical. And if, if anyone is listening to this and they, they, try, they were to actually try this, which I d- discourage unless there's someone with them, and they found they were confused, stop. It's, a, it's not a good technique to use in that case. I'm sure it can lead you to feeling very, very confused very, and very distressed. Confused. Yeah. yeah. So one last thing, Chris, before we have to end. I know that you, you know, you've obviously spent years invested in this and training and so on, is that You've gone on then to work with figures from your dreams, to have a relationship with these sort of figures. I don't know if parts of yourself. Yes. I'm not sure what even what to call I them. I call them inner figures. Inner yeah. figures. Mm-hmm. That then you've had this relationship where you actually consult, like an inner council. Yeah, I have an inner co- council, like of eight figures, and I'll talk to only one at a time. That's another good piece of advice. Only talk to one at a time, not all of them at the same time. That's overwhelming. And um, they've helped me in very difficult outer situations give me advice of how to approach them, um, like whether to uh, whether to go to Zurich uh, and train actually was done by doing that inner piece of work. Uh, and, and when you do that, do you ever struggle with an inner skeptic that's saying to you, how do I know I'm not making this up? I, I usually have that so loud before I start the active imagination. I don't have to worry. But if that figure were to appear, I, I call it a senex or a troll or a witch. It's usually a very negative, or I call it the critic in most people. It's just a very critical... The one who uh, thinks you might be making it up. Oh, yes. And the, yeah. yeah. And the, uh, I'm sorry. Maybe I misunderstood your question. It, it, one of the tests is the more it's not... Like something you'd think of, the more you know it's coming from the right place. Uh-huh. So there, there is a kind of part where if you start sounding like yourself, you're probably not doing it right. But the other part I was thinking about was the critic that says to you, nya, 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 why are you doing this? You're wasting your time. The ego's job is to actually stand up against that and say, stand back a little bit. You know, you haven't solved your life's problems up till now. You haven't helped out. So let these inner figures give it. And you give them room to help you. Yes, in your writing, you talk about waiting—the value of waiting yeah. in silence for the figure to. Respond. Yeah, when you ask them for help, there's this period where you just have to wait and be quiet, and that's actually about the hardest thing doing. And that seems very connected to how we work with our dreams in general. Yeah. We're going to have to stop, Chris Beach. It's been wonderful to talk Thank to you about you how much. we work with our dreams. If someone wants to contact you, if they're interested in working with their dreams, how can they reach you? Uh, my phone number at my office is 772-2779. And I'd also say there's a Brunswick Young Center in Brunswick. And you can call them 729-0300. And they have wonderful programs on dreams and myth and fairy tales and and things like that. And lastly, Chris Beach, what is a book on working with dreams that you'd recommend? Uh, there are several, but the one, I, if I was named just one, it would be Robert Johnson's Inner Work, I-N-N-E-R, Work. 
Great. Thank you so much Thank for you. being my guest. This is Dr. Ann on WMPG Safe Space. If you have a f- request or a suggestion for a future show, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.wmpg at gmail.com. My thanks to Jen Hodston for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.